Good morning. Morning. Um, morning, everybody. I can hear you, Marcus, as loudly as I could hear Mikel Arteta on the touchline on Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) I believe Arsenal have won the FA Cup nine times since Tottenham last triumphed at Wembley. Was there a cup final at the weekend? I didn't. I I was as a family event. We had no knowledge of that. Well, hello from me, John Inverdale, and it is strange to think that in a kind of parallel universe, we'd all be sitting down now to watch the closing ceremony of the Tokyo Games with doubtless all sorts of slightly incomprehensible stuff going on in the Olympic Stadium as a a million baguettes masquerading as battles descend from the sky to signal the official handover to Paris. But instead, as the final leg of this Olympic pod marathon, we've gathered some of the voices you've heard in previous discussions to look back and also look forward to Tokyo 2021 and beyond. So hello to Marcus Pugac. <laughs> so hello. Do that one. I think that's an edit. Good start as well. So hello to Mark Pugac, Sonia McLaughlin, Mark Buckland, and Jonathan Obren. No, no. Do you want to do that again, or should I, why do you want to do that? I thought that was going to be like a theme of it. You know, you were going to make everyone's name everyone, wrong. Mix okay, them all why up. Why don't I just do, do that? that. Yeah. Yeah. So hello to uh, Marcus Pugac. Sonia McLaughlin, Mark Buckland and uh, John Overend or, or whatever their names are who, and he's actually gone from being coach to kind of squad player for this final episode and as a general first point to everybody I, I just I genuinely wonder about this you know this has been an amazing sporting summer because there hasn't been much sport and it's missed the Olympics but actually given the str- strange world that we're living in at the moment you know has the fact that the games were postponed by and large passed everybody by Sonia what do you reckon? Uh, I genuinely think people have got other things to worry about. I mean, as somebody who adores sport and the Olympics is the greatest show on earth and I, like many here, I should be there right now. I think football coming back has filled that void that people have been desperate for sport of some type to come back. But I think people are worrying about shielding elderly relatives and whether or not the furlough scheme is going to be extended and whether they're going to catch COVID. Let's be blunt about it. So I, I genuinely think it's really tough for the athletes involved. It's, it's really hit them hard because for some, it might have been their last ever chance. In a year's time, they might not be fit enough or they might, might, might have an injury. Who knows? So I, I think mm. it's really hard on the athletes. But I think for the general public, I think there's just so much going on in the world that it's probably just right that the Olympics has taken a pause. Mark, what do you think? Um, I'm with Sanj. I think most of us don't really know what day of the week it is, do we, from uh, from 24-hour to 24-hour. And we've got so much on our own plate. Sanj talked about shielding. You know, I've had a, a, you know, a mother-in-law to worry about. I've got A-level results to worry about next week, which, which is small in the scale of things, but very big for those concerned who haven't had the opportunity to do the exams themselves. The, the test match has started. That's good. That takes our mind off it. I'm, I'm with Sonj 100%. I think we've got so many things on our mind at the moment that, that something's been postponed for 365 days is actually really low on the list of priorities. And it gives us something else to look forward to next year, that 2021 is unexpectedly, with the Euros next year, of course, which I was supposed to be working on majorly this year, next year as well with the Olympics, that so we've got a bit of a bonanza summer to look forward to. We hope. I don't think we should be naive about this. It's going to happen next year either. Any of these things. When the Euros are supposed no, that... to be played around the whole of Europe. Really? Can anybody really see that happening in its current shape and, uh, and form? But I don't know what odds you'd put on 
normality being restored 12 months from now. But there is absolutely no guarantee that Tokyo 2021 is going to take place. And I I read an interview with uh, Katerina Johnson-Thompson over the weekend where she was saying, you know, that her world had come crashing down because Tokyo wasn't happening this year, which you you totally get from the point of view of, of somebody like that who had such great aspirations for the for this summer but i think for the for the rest of us who weren't in that position it, it, it oh was it olympic year i know i know mm-hmm. jonathan you don't quite agree with that well, it's hard to disagree isn't it with much of what sonia and, and mark have said there but in, in my opinion am i missing the olympic games are we missing the olympic games of course we are we just don't necessarily realize it because it's this time isn't it every four years that we get into sports that we haven't followed for three years and 11 months. How can you not be missing sitting on the sofa, switching between the modern pentathlon and the canoe slalom, for example, or listening to the radio where they bounce between the dressage and the taekwondo? This is it. This is Olympic time. And I never necessarily bought into this idea that the Premier League had to return for for national spirits. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm just saying we are missing it. We just don't necessarily know that we are. You get the casting vote, Marcus, then. Well, just to further a point made by Mark, I'm, I, I've been worrying about my mother-in-law for the last 17 years. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> That's that, an old that's joke, my, but it's a good one. That was Marcus Buckland who said that, not Mark Pugach, <laughs> if my mother-in-law is listening. Yes, fortunately, I don't think mine has subscribed, and I won't be advising her to do that. Um, I, a point that Lutelo uh, Mohammed made when uh, Jonathan and I chatted with him, he, he talked about... Tokyo 2021 as uh, as a beacon of hope and I I think that is is going to be a very very special game assuming it does go ahead and on a more negative note I've already heard that Wimbledon is planning for a behind closed doors championships next summer they can't use their policy uh, again as they did this year so we have got to be realistic but assuming that happens I think we are going to be so grateful for what we've missed that um, as disappointing and as strange as this summer has been, I hope down the line there is going to be, uh, to quote somebody else, a sporting bonanza. By way of an advertising break, and this is a complete crib from the Mr Guest round on the BBC panel show, Would I Lie to You? Uh, We are going to introduce somebody to you, to people who are actually part of this podcast, but also you listening to it, uh, whose name is Dan. Hello, Dan. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Can you sound a bit more enthusiastic? <laughs> hey. Hey, good. Hello, Dan. Anyway, thank you very much, Dan. And uh, what we're going to... Dan is, is somebody, clearly, uh, who is going to get really into the spirit of things over the course of the next five minutes or so. And he is linked to one of our crew on this podcast today and nobody apart from obviously the person who he is linked to knows who that is and while you're listening to this over the next five minutes or so it's up to you to try and work out which one of us is telling the truth so first person into bat uh, marcus tell us what is your connection to dan well this is my neighbor dan he's an audi delivery guy who when kath mary demanded being paid in cake, very kindly drove all the way to Birmingham and delivered a box of raspberry sponge to her door. Jonathan, what's your connection? Uh, Well, this is my mate Dan. Uh, We used to play in a Clacton-on-Sea funk band. Uh, He plays the guitar on the incidental music that you've been listening to throughout this podcast. Um, Shall I hand it on to Sonia? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is my cousin, Dan, who, when he was just eight years old, he was edged out by Marcus in the West Sutton Swimming Championships. (laughs) Didn't you mention that, Marcus, on a previous episode? Great sporting moment that should be discussed more often, I feel. And Pugas? 
This is my friend Dan. Now, he, people like him are the most important people in my life. Forget about my family. He's a computer engineer. And when the whole of the Claire Balding episode crashed, and remember, that was episode one, he managed single-handedly to rescue the hard drive from the dead, managed to save the episode, and therefore saved this entire series. You're lying, Pete. Well, if that is true, all I can say is, Dan, I need your phone number. But anyway, um, (laughs) first question from me then. Uh, Marcus, why Raspberry Sponge? Well, that is something that that Catherine Mary has had a real battle with throughout her career. You know, supreme athlete. But from the age of six, she had an aged grandmother who, who, you know, she was the forefront of the the baking extravaganza of today. And she gave her this um, wonderful, I mean, they are special because I'm lucky enough to have tasted one, one of these special raspberry sponge cakes. And she's fought a battle with sponge ever since. And um, that's why she demanded um, to be paid she, in She does like cake cakes on. You know this, don't you? Kath loves cake. She eats so too much cake. She didn't that eat cake when she was of an athlete. Of course it's true. I'm worried about Marcus eating too much sponge cake and then the mental image of him in his Speedos as well at the West Sutton Swimming Championships. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you see, uh, Cougars, back in those days at the West Sutton Swimming Championships, we took things very seriously. There was yeah. no such thing as raspberry sponge in the area on that Anyway, you grew day. up in central London. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about the geographical veracity of your statement there. I swam everywhere. <laughs> but how does Sonia know your cousin? I think that's all a bit convoluted, to be honest. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in your one, Jonathan, but, you know, your Eric Clapton-on-Sea funk band, what sort of stuff were you playing? Oh, it was everything from, um, you know, Somebody Else's Guy, uh, Jocelyn Brown, all that sort of, sort of 80s disco stuff. And, you know, we, used to, we used to pack out pubs uh, down by the seafront in Clapton-on-Sea, and, you know, every Saturday night was a, was a riot, and people would come in from all around, and they'd be climbing on tables, and they'd be dancing to this, uh, this disco, this cheesy disco that we'd be blasting out from adjacent to the bar. Um, happy times. What sort of pubs? Can you? What, what residency did you have? Uh, yeah, no, it wasn't a residency. You know, we'd be there for like ten quid a man, something like that. But that would be. Give, our... give us a venue. Give us a venue. Oh, um, <laughs> um, uh, Dog some... and Duck. Oh no! What was that <laughs> place? Um, there was a place called Tom Peppers. You know, Essex was was big on the live music scene. You've got to understand that this was the nineties we were talking about. Early early nineties, and every Saturday night, if you weren't out seeing a big soul and funk. Band on the Essex coastline, you you weren't living, frankly. Can I point out that in the early 90s, I employed Jonathan Overend every Saturday for two years on BBC Essex for £10 And he never mentioned this. He never once in two years when I said, right, underdone, good show, I'm off to the pub, what are you doing? He didn't say, oh, I'm going off to Clacton-on-Sea and my funk band with my mate Dan. Not once in two years did that sentence escape his lips. Mark, I've got to ask you a question, though. You live in the middle of absolutely no Nowhere in the English countryside, surrounded by 40,000 acres which you mow with your sit-on lawnmower. How, when your computer crashes, do you suddenly conjure up a computer engineer? Oh, because online. Because uh, online, because everybody knows, anyone who's worked with me knows that I am the most technically incompetent man. I once had one of those little 
I think we called them MiFi's, you know, those little devices about the size of a small matchbox, which, which helped the Wi-Fi in your house. And once before Sport on 5 one day on a Friday, I put it on the side in my kitchen, looked at it, and it burst into flames. <laughs> so everybody knows that when it comes to technology, I mean, when I, when I left uh, Sport on 5, the people cheering the loudest were the engineers because I poured water down things, I knocked things off the side, I smashed <laughs> iPhones, and anyone who ever went to Twickenham with me on a Saturday would have heard me at high pitches we couldn't get the machinery to work. So I have these people at my fingertips because anybody, as Ovin knows, who has to work with me, the first thing they have, they have to do three things. Provide him with an engineer, tell him when he can have a cup of tea and tell him when he can go to the loo. OK, let, let's, put, let's end this charade. Um, so is Dan an Aldi delivery driver? Is he a guy who used to play in a funk band in a slightly spurious pub in Clapton-on-Sea? Is he Sonia's cousin who, for an inexplicable reason, swam against Marcus Buckland thousands of years ago? Or is he some random computer engineer who saved this entire pod series? So, Dan... <laughs> With a, with a measure of enthusiasm, could you could you tell us could you tell us who you are? I'm Dan, and I used to play in a Clacton on Sea Funk. No, <laughs> I can't believe it! Spurious pubs. Oh. <laughs> and do you remember the names of the venues? Uh, Tom Peppers. It's a real venue. Uh, that's a real venue. It's a real right, place. Okay. It's a real place. Can I ask what this Clacton on Sea Funk band was called? I'm not, I'm not sure. We actually had a name, Dan, did we? Uh, Future Funk Foundation, I think. Oh, Over, under, sideways, Dan. We were quite bad. good, though, if I remember rightly. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, anyway, Dan, and, and seriously, Dan, have you played the guitar on the incidental music in this? I have, yes. I played the guitar on it. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. Well, on behalf of all of us and everybody who's listened to them, thank you very much. It's been great. It really has. You don't have your guitar there. You couldn't give us a burst, could you? I c- well, I could, yes. Go on, then. Give us a quick burst. And Invers, while we're listening to this, and we're talking about Clacton on Sea, can you not tell us your great cricket celebrity story regarding Eric Clapton? Very quickly, playing against an Eric Clapton 11. I was feel, and it was Eric Clapton's last match as a cricketer, a huge cricket fan. And uh, he opened the batting, second or third ball, he skies it to me at cover. And Mark Ramprakash is fielding next door to me, and he shouts at me, drop it, <laughs> with a couple of other words tossed in as well. And I might have dropped it anyway, but I, it had to hit the ground. And I always think that the book that has never been written, or will indeed be written, I can call myself the man who, the man who dropped Clapton. Brilliant. Dan, thank you very much indeed. We'll, we'll see you soon, mate. You're welcome. You're welcome. We are, thank we're you. working on our third album as yeah. we speak. Little little plug there. See you soon. All right, Cheers, mate. Thank you very much. Thank Cheers. you, Dan. Thank Bye. you very much. There he goes. Okay, so you know, a, a nice jolly interlude there. But we've got sort of ten minutes or so, quarter of an hour, to to actually look ahead to the future of the Olympic Games. And I'm going to make a proposal here that I'm going to throw at you. And if you don't agree with me, then you're all wrong. Okay. So. Undeniably, one of the great things about the Olympics is their variety of location. The, you know, the images of Sydney and Rome and London and Mexico, so different in their tone and their texture. But the world is changing, and because of recent events, at an accelerated rate too. 
So where do the Olympics fit and sit in the post-COVID world? They're obviously still important, but they're impossible to sustain in their current format with individual cities bidding on behalf of governments or regimes. And the ultimate absurdity of this, and we've mentioned Winter Games earlier on, is the Winter Games coming up in Beijing where it doesn't snow. And the only other bidder was that hotbed of political democracy, Kazakhstan. And the game's obviously been political since Berlin, perhaps even before that. And London was one of the most political. You know, it was in the long list of showboating to the world via the, the soft power of sport. And here we are with the Football World Cup in the desert in two years' time. And you suspect the Olympics heading there in 2032 because no other countries in the world will be able to afford them in perpetuity. So here is the chance, here is the proposal to start semi-afresh because we have 12 years until then to be radical and to give the Olympics a permanent home in Greece, paid for on a pro rata basis by all the competing nations. The facilities there are, 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 are they're there anyway, albeit in a bit of a mess after the game 16 years ago, but nothing that a good trowel and a hoe can't sort out. The FA Cup is quite happy at Wembley every year, the Masters at Augusta, the Olympics can be in Athens, and every four years it remains the ultimate target, and the event is none the poorer. In fact, I think it's richer, and other cities around the world can spend their money on rather more important things. Discuss. Wow. Couldn't disagree more, John. The whole joy of it is to go around the world. The whole challenge for the different athletes is going around the world and getting used to different conditions. It's extremely muggy in some places. It's, it's colder in other places. If you had it in the same place every year, that would just even things out. But I, I will just say one thing where I think, you're for me, you're halfway there. It is far too expensive now for people to be building all these facilities. Why not rotate it around the cities that already have the facilities? Because then you get the geographical disparity, but you don't hobble the competing, the host nation by forcing them to spend billions and billions of pounds, which they didn't have before, and they certainly don't have in a post-COVID world. So why not rotate it around? And there are enough cities that have hosted the Olympics, even in modern times, why not rotate it around them so you still get the variety? I think Invers is absolutely spot on. I look at some of the disadvantages of hosting the Games, the cost of building the stadiums, uh, the fact they only get short-term use, there's the potential for negative publicity, the security costs, the higher taxes, local businesses suffer, it crowds out other forms of public investment. I mean, London costs, what, £14.6 I think, yes, go to one venue, we all get used to it, we all start to love it, as we do, as, as Invers mentioned, with Augusta for the Masters, and you can maintain the facilities there with the support of all the other nations. I think, actually, having... When I first heard your proposal, I was, I was a little sceptical, but actually, I think it makes absolute sense. When you think of Montreal in 1976, they were still paying for those games 30 years later. I mean, that is utterly preposterous. And the number of cities that will be able to throw their hat in the ring in years to come is, is but, negligible. But they don't I mean, need to because a lot of them have already been well. built. I just, I, just think, I just think all we're doing... If, no, but if we allow it still to become a, a free-for-all, the only place where the Olympic Games is going to be played in years to come is in the Middle East. That, that's it, because nobody else will have a chance to do it. Or... Russia again, or China, or other places that perhaps you might not want the games to go to for various reasons. So you know, it's it's not it's not a level playing field anymore. And I, I personally, I, I just think it's it's a radical, but it's a very sensible way of looking at and, and maintaining and securing the future stability of the games. I like the I like the idea, John. I, I think the costs involved are preposterous. I mean, Athens was bankrupt by the Olympic Games and it's really sad to see the venues there looking so 
tatty and tired and unused. I mean, at least in London, the venues are still used. I like the idea of maybe drawing on... I'm going to meet you halfway in this. I like the idea we've got the Olympic five Olympic rings. Let's draw on that imagery and let's have five cities, five different venues that they rotate around. And I think then the cities know when they're when they get the games, they can prepare. And as you say, the, the money can be going into a central pot and those five cities and you can have it around the five continents of the world so that everybody kind of it looks different every four years rather than just one city, one place like Athens. So, so who'd want to, well, who'd, who'd be interested in Africa? Because don't we need an Olympic Games in Africa? Well, Cape Town. Let's have one in Cape Town. South Africa's bankrupt. But that's why I'm saying we have a central pot of money. We're not asking South Africa to pay for the Olympic Games. We're asking the Olympics to pay for the Olympic Games. All the cities come together and pay for the Olympic Games. Which I think is a, is a nice idea. But then someone somewhere arbitrar- arbitrarily has got to decide on which nation within that huge continent of Africa then gets the Games. It's a good thought, though, Sonia, I have to say. And, it's an inter- and I genuinely think it's an interesting... What, what do you think, Jonathan? I think it's a really interesting debate. Yeah, I mean, even just, just listening to you and, and then Marcus, who concurred, Invers, you know, it really has got me thinking because I can't, I can't say it's actually anything I've considered before. And I think that, that goes to show, doesn't it? We get caught up into this idea of, oh, isn't it wonderful? We're going to Beijing this year and we went to Sydney and now it's, now it's Rio, wonderful, and wasn't London amazing? But it's all too easy to get caught up in the spirit of the games, wave a flag, love the achievements, and then go on to the next place without concerning ourselves with the impact on those cities. So it is absolutely vital, you're right, that we give close thought to this. I suppose where I'm slightly uh, torn is we don't want to be looking at the future just through the lens of what we perceive the IOC to be. And yeah, the IOC has made mistakes in the past. And yes, the IOC might be looking at various bids from different angles. But we've got to believe that they can reform, can't we? And and be a better organisation in the future and that people with real worthwhile aims and ambitions are at the forefront of the IOC moving forward who can actually deliver games to new territories that are cost-effective and are financially viable moving forward. That, That, for me, would still be the ideal situation. Let's leave that for a moment uh, because the clock's going to beat us and move on to something else. Whatever the Olympics and wherever the Olympics are in 2032, 36, what are they going to look like? And are we going to find ourselves in 20 years' time proclaiming eSports Olympic champions with a, an equivalent adulation as we do the winner of the 100 metres? Because I think it's a pretty safe bet. Yes, we that will. E, that, that eSports are going to be an integral part of the Games absolutely. within a decade or so. And you, also, you think, we, yes, yeah? they absolutely will, John. And, and we'd be foolish to, to kid ourselves otherwise. I mean, this is the direction of travel and it's just the way the world is going to go. And absolutely, eSports is already at a level where it is going to get huge coverage over the next decade. It's going to become pretty much the main thing in terms of our our sport consumption. And when I say our, I'm not necessarily talking about us because we're all of a similar generation. I'm talking about our as in the world. And 
it's just going to be the way of the world. And absolutely, why why should we decry ability in that activity, the chance to compete at the Olympic but do Games? You think it'll be, it's going to do you think it'll be happening at the same time as the Olympics, Jonathan? Do you think they'll be in parallel? Be there'll be an esports Olympics while the you know the inverted hmm. commas the athletic Olympics is going ahead. That's an interesting one. That is an interesting one. But I mean, potentially. What, what do you think? A Winter Games, a Summer Games and an E-Games? I'm sorry. I think it's absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> I just think we're, at, we're at this... Well, you know, call me old-fashioned, call me, you know, I don't know, anything you want. But obesity is a massive issue. And yet we want to encourage people to sit on their backsides and play e-sports and say, here you go, you can be really good at this and we can give you an Olympic gold medal. We should, be encourage, we should be encouraging people to get out there and move. Get out there and try a sport. Get out there and try whatever it is it, that might eventually be your thing. But try something. I think we're, going, we're, we're feeding into a whole generation of children where we say it's OK for you to sit for hours in your bedroom playing Fortnite or whatever it is that is the, the order of the day. I think it's a I think it's a slippery slope that we encourage e-sports to give it that Olympic status. Sonj, how how much do the wonderful archers move? What what's the difference between the skill and precision of archery and the skill and precision of some esports? Mm. And, but, and yeah. can I can I chip in on that actually, Sonj? Because I, I I instinctively I agree with you a hundred percent, and I would I would have agreed with you until I actually was pointed in the direction of a, a forum on a Nike website where they were talking to some of the top e-gamers in the world. And they train in the gym for five hours a day. They have nutritionists, they have psychiatrists, they have everything else. Because if you want to be, in, in inverted commas, an Olympic e-gamer, you have to be so sharp, you have to be on it, so, you know, to, for a precision way that you would do if you were an athlete, that the counter argument to that is, you know, you might start off being a bit of a lounge lizard sitting there. But if you actually want, if you're going to be inspired, in inverted commas, uh, by people winning e-game gold medals, you would then realise that the only way you can be really good is to be fit in body because it means you're fit in mind and you've got to put the right stuff in that body to enable you to maximise that talent. I think it's about perception, John. Mm. You try being the parent whose child comes back from school, goes straight to their bedroom and wants to play Fortnite or whatever and you're saying, come on, let's go out and kick a football around. Let's go out and do... Let's go and play a game of tennis. Let's let's knock a cricket ball about in the garden. And he's like, no, no, I want to play. I can play this all day long. It's 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 in the Olympics, mum. And I think mum's gonna and dad are gonna have a much tougher time getting little Charlie to go out and do what they want to do if they if their kid can just oh well it's an Olympic sport now. Look at the figures, Sonia. Four hundred and fifty-four million viewers on on one website that um, that I looked at recently. Revenue. Uh, of over a, a billion dollars. It is there. I think you've got to find room for... I like the idea, was it, was it Pugas who said have a summer games, a winter games and an eSport games? Whether you have an eSport games or not, they're going to be playing them anyway. So you might as well sort of capture the moment. Have, I, I would hate to see it running concurrently with a summer games, but, but um, have it at a different time of the year. Can't, you can't mm. turn back the clock. Let's just not add the word Olympic to it. Yeah, that, well, that's the issue. But do you think we would revere a 10 times Olympic e-games gold medalist in the way that we would Michael Phelps. I think it's your depends on your generation. Yeah. Yeah. 
kids today, teenagers, absolutely they would. Absolutely they would. I mean, look at the way the kids revere YouTubers now in a way that we would never have considered even five years ago. You know, YouTubers are TV stars. And who are we to sit here and tell the kids that in a decade's time, the main sports stars won't won't be eSports stars, whether we like it or not. Hey, the two YouTubers on Celebrity Gogglebox are hilarious, and I had to be told who they were, but they're really funny. <laughs> You're so down with the kids, Mark, aren't so you? so down. <laughs> so, and just, just continuing the future of the Olympics, because obviously we've got people climbing up walls and things as an Olympic sport's coming our way. If, if there was one sport, it might be new, it might be old, it might have just somehow slipped through the Olympic fingers over the years. If there was one sport that you would like to be in the Games in 2032 in Turkmenistan, what, what, would, what would it be? Do you think squash and netball, do you think their times have gone? Those are the obvious ones. Or is there something else that, we're, that the Games are missing out on at the moment? Sonia? I think there is a very strong argument to have both squash and netball in the Olympics. But then we have this issue that the Olympics decree that you have to have men and women competing in both events. And so that it's always tough for netball. I think it should just be in full stop. You know, you saw what happened when England won the gold medal at the Commonwealth Games. It was just, it was such a magical moment. And it's a, it's a fantastic sport. What's long bothered me has been the number of gold medals that can be won in swimming. So I'm not taking swimming out of the Olympic Games. No, of course not. But I'm certainly reducing the swimming programme because I think it is... It just bothers me, the, the medal inflation in swimming, that Michael Phelps can be decreed as, you know, potentially the greatest athlete of all time. But then, you know, he can run 200 metres, he can do it five times and win five gold medals. To me, that just is, it devalues the currency of an Olympic gold medal. You know, if it takes Andy Murray five matches and maybe two, three hours on court each time to win a gold medal or... A sailor like Ben Ainsley, 10 races, each of them tactical and physically demanding, that he can just, Michael Phelps can rock up and swim 200 metres five times and get all those gold medals. To me, it bothers me that they can give them out so like confetti and swimming so I would be reducing the swimming program on that subject actually I must just tell you one very quick story I, I was on eggheads once with various other sporting people and it came down to almost a tie break where, with Dennis Taylor the great snooker player and the question he was asked was I can't remember the name of the athlete but it was a very obviously a Russian name won four gold medals at the Melbourne Olympics was it, you know, and what sport was it in? Now, obviously, the only sports you could win four gold medals in were gymnastics and or swimming. And it, he was on his own. And I was trying to sort of send vibes to him saying, I'd no idea what the answer was, but there was only two possible answers. <laughs> Dennis, God bless him, went, hammer? <laughs> what? <laughs> so, <laughs> Sonia, I'm interested in your, in your argument, though, because what, where does that leave your man Bolt? You know, he only runs for 9.59 seconds. Yeah, but he can only run in the 200 metres once, Jonathan. So are we saying then if, if, if Bolt is going to get the same crack of the whip as Michael Phelps, he's got to start running 200 metres backwards. He's only got one chance in 200 metres. I'll give you a typical fatuous Buckland answer, but I did host some Olympic Games at the weekend. We had a family Olympics, just a, a little gathering, 
And I'll tell you, the four most popular events were the three-legged race, snakes and ladders, Jenga and the wheelbarrow race. So I shall suggest at least one of those perhaps to be considered. I tell you what, I'd love to see Jenga in the Olympics. That would be, because the jeopardy there would be just fantastic. Although impossible to schedule from a TV point of view, because you never know how long it's going to last. Mark, do you want to contribute to this or have you lost interest? Uh, No, no, no. I mean, if Perudo, I would suggest, um, you know, the good Mexican liar dice. Otherwise, my boring answer is, and I'm pretty sure I saw this with you, John, Peter Nickel winning the Commonwealth gold, I think for Scotland then, before he switched to England, controversially, in squash. And I was watching this thinking, this is ridiculous. And obviously, it's a huge game in um, in India and Pakistan as well, isn't it? This should be an Olympic sport. And I suspect one of the reasons it's not is because it's quite hard to see the ball. It was quite hard to see the ball when I was watching it live, actually, and they make it look too easy. And then you, you go, well, that's easy. You can make two strides, you get the ball back. Then you go and play squash yourself and you get carted off with a cardiac arrest. So I would I would go squash. <laughs> I'm not sure anyone has actually given a satisfactory answer as to why squash is no not one's given an in, answer. in the Olympic no. Games. I mean, it's so obvious. Badminton, tennis, established Olympic sports. Get squash in yeah. what's happening. Mm. And and just to yeah. round this debate off, are, are we still happy for things like the modern pen? Athlon to be in there. It, that, it's, it's kind of the idiosyncratic Olympic element that adds a bit of charm to it as well. 100%. The, the Olympics still needs a little bit of, you know, we're talking about esports. The Olympics still needs a little bit of tradition. We, we need a few funny stories. And I tell you what, John, we've been keeping everybody hanging since episode three for your simply red <laughs> Barcelona 1992 story. I don't know if it's going to be worth the wait. I'd like to convince myself that it will be. Um, what on earth happened? 1992, a couple of friends of mine have done really good favours for me and I need to pay them back. Simply Red are the biggest band in the world. And I was doing, I used to do the sport every day in those days on Simon Bates's show on Radio One. And I thought, why don't uh, Simply Red have announced a, a tour? If I can get six tickets to go and see Simply Red at Wembley, that would be a great way of saying thank you to the, these people. Anyway, I went to see Simon. He said, darling, leave it with me. I'll sort it out for you. I'll get you tickets for the first night of their residency at Wembley Arena. I said, great, thank you very much. The weeks go by. You have to remember there's no mobile phones or anything in those days, so you'd left a message and, or somebody put a post-it note and that was it. So Simply Red have announced that the first night of their tour is the Tuesday night. I don't work on the Monday because I worked on the Saturday. I go into work on the Tuesday to find this fantastic envelope full of tickets and God knows what else. Row double A at Wembley Arena and... Uh, little swing badges to the after party to meet Mick Hucknall and everybody else. I'm going, oh, my God, Simon, you have pushed the boat out here in a big, big way. I cannot thank you enough. I'm on the tube going up to Wembley when I look at the dates on the tickets and it was the Monday night. It was the night before and they'd added an extra date to their tour and they'd started at Wembley the night earlier. So I am now on my way to Wembley. I've got two friends coming up from Dorset and two coming from Kent. No means of contacting them. Looking forward to going to see Simply Red at Wembley Arena and I have no tickets. So I get to the arena and I'm, I'm in a panic. I mean, I'm in an absolute panic. So I go up to a tout and he, he recognised me from the telly and whatnot. And he, he said, please, have you got six tickets? I said, he said, yes, I have. He said, they're not great seats. They're right at the back. But I said, listen, I'll take them. I'll take them. They're £12.50 face value. He said, I want 50 quid for each of them. So it was 300 quid. That was a lot of money in those days. I'm going, oh my God, what am I going to do? I thought, I've got no option. So I run. I say, please don't sell these tickets. I run to Wembley High Street 
take out all this money and I'm looking at it and thinking, this is ridiculous, you cannot afford this. But anyway, I run back, get the six tickets. At least I've got six tickets. I don't tell anybody what's happened. But we go and see the concert. It's a great concert. It's a fantastic night. We go and have a Chinese afterwards. And over dinner, I say, I've got a good story to tell you. Later that week, go to Barcelona for the Olympic Games. Opening ceremony. You, uh, those of you who were there, uh, Solange, you know, going up to Montjuic, the Olympic Stadium and whatnot, you get out of the train station and this bloke suddenly starts shouting across the concourse. Hey, John, John, hello, mate. How you doing? I was simply red. And it was the same tout who'd sold me the six tickets at Wembley, Wembley Arena a few days earlier. And there he was. He was like, do you want six tickets for the opening ceremony? I said, no, thanks, mate. I'm all right. Oh, brilliant. One more story, Sonia. Do you remember Athens? We were staying miles out of town and we were in this facility that could, was going to then be turned into a barracks for the police afterwards so that tells you it was pretty basic so we were like going to get a night out to actually go into the center of Athens I was so excited because it was going to see the the architecture and go to this lovely hotel where we were going to have drinks on a rooftop bar all of which we did but then we got into this sort of slightly ramshackled taxi you and I John and we were going towards the centre of Athens. And I was getting slightly anxious. The red letters on the dashboard of this car were just screaming at me the cost of this taxi journey. I was like, John, look at the taxi journey. We can't, this is crazy. What are we doing? We should have got a bus. Why are we in this car? <laughs> and we were starting to negotiate with the taxi driver. And I was like, John, I can't afford this. I can't afford this. So he's like, you said to me, what are you talking about? It's not expensive. I was like, look at it. This large number on the dashboard. And he went, Sonj, that's the frequency of the radio station. <laughs> I was Poor so Sonja. panicked. <laughs> I, I don't remember that, actually, but that's a, that's a great tale. Mark, what about you? John, I don't think most of mine could be told on air. Do you know what? Honestly, I think we've had some <laughs> tremendous nights out because I think we've always worked by the, the premise of work hard, play hard. And there's some moments you think, I really do need to go to bed because I'm getting up in half an hour and I need to make sense. <laughs> Especially in Beijing, Pugas, I remember, where a night out, particularly in the right part of town, would cost you, as a, as a group of eight, all you can eat and as many beers from the fridge as we wanted, approximately £2.50. Oh, yes. Just talking of negotiating things as well, John, I remember from, from Beijing, from that Olympics, you, one of the precarious natures of covering these games is sometimes the positions you get allocated in to do your reports and commentary from. And doing the tennis, as I was at the time, you get so used to being behind triple glass blazing at the Grand Slam venues. At the Olympic Games, you're out in the open. You're out with the spectators. And of course, there are so few broadcasters around the world doing play-by-play -play radio commentary. So when, when we at the BBC rocked up wanting to do Andy Murray matches, nobody quite knew what to do, especially myself, commentating in very, very harsh tones. And I remember it annoyed the Canadian player, Daniel Nestor, who was playing the Murray brothers in the first round of the doubles, so much that between between points, he absolutely leathered this spare ball in my direction. I took cover under the desk. The ball whisks past my left ear. It, it was way out, Daniel. I, I resisted the temptation to call it a fault, uh, but suffice to say, I did cover the rest of the match from the safety of underneath the desk. Oh, that's excellent. So that just quickly, Tokyo next year, what do we think is going to be, if we're looking in our 
soothsaying crystal balls. What's what's going to be the the pinnacle of the games next year? It might, might it might actually be the city because Tokyo is an amazing place. Well, I tell you what, I'm most looking forward to having chatted with him alongside um, Overs a few days ago. The story of Lutella Mohammed got the bronze in the Taekwondo 2012. Was a second away from winning gold in Rio. Okay, that unbelievably emotional interview on TV afterwards. But if you did hear our chat a few days ago he is so determined and confident that he's going to win gold next year and uh, and then as, as over says in the interviews he can direct his own film so that's what i'm most looking forward to i, I can't pretend to be a, a massive taekwondo expert but that for me in is uh, i think going to be the story of the games i want to screech around the streets of tokyo in the mario kart which i didn't get a chance to do when i was at the rugby world cup <laughs> It looks so much fun. You get dressed up <laughs> and you just go go-karting on the streets of Tokyo. It, look, it just looks crazy. I want to do that. I Mark? think just have the games. Have Honestly, the games, I, you're right. just to have some sort of normality, some sort of global coming together and everybody enjoying it for what it is. And Tokyo is fabulous. And Sonia and I and you, John, were lucky enough to be there for the Rugby World Cup. And they're fabulous hosts. And the food's amazing. Have, have the Olympic Games and then burrow into the back streets. I can't remember what it's called of Tokyo and find one of the karaoke bars and have a really good sing song and everybody enjoy it together. And then hopefully have the equivalent that I saw, which was Sean... Fitzpatrick, the great All Black, teaching a bemused Japanese karaoke owner, the hacker, at three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true, Invers, isn't it? Like we said, right at the very top of this final pod of the series, there's no guarantee it's going to happen. I mean, 50-50, I think Kath Merry said in one of the early episodes, and, and maybe even that's being ambitious. We've surely got to find a vaccine. Surely Japan has got to be completely COVID clear before we can invite the world to Tokyo. And uh, are both those things going to happen? We'll just have to see. Well, that's rather a sombre note to finish on, but it's a, it's a reality check as well because none of us know what, what the future can hold in that respect. But, but it's been fascinating debating what the future of the Olympic movement might look like and also reflecting on some silly and occasionally sensible moments from days gone by. I, I think this whole podcast series, I hope you've enjoyed it enormously, but it was the brainchild of, of Jonathan, so I think it's only fair that you should have the final word. Well, thanks to you, John, and thanks to Sonia and Marcus and Pugas and Andy Stevenson and Anne-Marie Batson, who've been part of this project as well. Uh, I'd like to thank all the uh, the people who've worked on it behind the scenes as well. You know, we, we haven't got deep pockets. We're all freelancers, and that's one of the, uh, the aims of this project at a time when the freelance broadcast community has been really struggling and in so many cases excluded from any kind of government assistance at this time. Time. You know, we don't want to make out that we are we are desperate and desolate, but it's a, it's a live issue in our industry. And that was one of the ambitions behind this project to involve a lot of freelancers, both in front and also behind the microphones. So thanks to Danny and to Robin and to Lee and to Emily and Rebecca, who've helped us out uh, along the way. And, and I must thank our new friends at Aldi as well, who've been uh, great to work with and a great support across the series. Uh, Jake and Ian and Molly and the whole team up there in Warwickshire as well. So so thanks to them. And uh, John, thank you. Thanks for thanks for hosting our rap party. I, I presume you've organised uh, an open bar. Fat chance. <laughs> All round to Marcus's then. <laughs> He's got to get some beers off a tout. <laughs> That's a lovely end, that. 
Feels is a 9419 independent production. In association with Aldi UK, the official supermarket partner of Team GB.